0: Hey, friends, are you familiar with the most trusted business network for business executives? It's the C Suite Network. If you're a business of $5 million or greater, and if you're a VP level or higher, then you're invited to join the C Suite Network to connect with your business peers. Go to C Suite Network.com, that's a C Suite Network.com to learn more about the benefits, meetings, and services exclusive for C Suite executives like you. Okay, let's do the show. <laughs> It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 463 of Accelerate, where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Hey, if you haven't already done so, please go to iTunes, subscribe to this podcast, leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. You can do it all from the phone that you're listening to this podcast on. If you want to take a second, pause. I'll wait for you. I'll be here when you get back. Now, did you know that studies have found that the cost of a bad sales hire is four to seven times the annual salary of the position? And That's a huge cost, a huge penalty if you get it wrong. And if you're a CEO and a sales leader, you can't afford to do this very often. Unfortunately, too many companies do. So to help, I've created a step-by-step guide that'll show you how to develop a process to hire the right sales candidates for your company. It's called How to Hire a Winning Sales Team, and it's free. Just go to Accelerate fm winning Again, that's accelerate.fm forward slash winning to get your free copy today. Joining me on the show today is Elise Mitchell. She's the CEO of Mitchell Communications Group and CEO of Dentsu Age's Public Relations Network, as well as the author of a very interesting book called Leading Through the Turn How a Journey Mindset Can Help Leaders Find Success and Significance. And I enjoyed reading Elise's book in part because she provides a fresh perspective on leadership that applies equally to executives, entrepreneurs, sales leaders, and sales professionals, individual contributors. And I enjoyed her idea of this journey mindset for leaders, how you have to focus on your destination while also embracing the journey itself. So, let's jump into it. Elise Mitchell, welcome to Accelerate.
1: Thank you, Andy. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, good. Excited to have you on. So, in the book, Leading Through the Turn, You're um, conveying leadership lessons from the perspective of a motorcycle rider. i sort of hearkening back to Robert Piercing's classic, The Zen and Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, as I was was reading (laughs) it. And you make reference to that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, how big of a thing is motorcycle riding in your life right now?
1: It, yeah, well, that's funny. It didn't used to be uh, until ten years ago when I first got on the back of my husband's bike. And it's funny. I never looked back. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, it's dangerous and scary." Then there's the other half of the population that says, "Oh my gosh, how exciting!" You know. I guess I fall in the latter camp. <laughs> but, um, but you know, it, it's funny. When I first got on, it was just so exciting. I mean, the sights, the sounds, the smells. It was so intoxicating. It was. I describe it to people like an out-of-body experience. And I was really hooked. And after that first trip with my husband, he said, you know, Elise, you were meant to ride your own bike. And so I did. I took the motorcycle safety course, and I have, uh, have had two different bikes. Today I ride a Honda CBR 300R, which I guess the main thing to know about that is it's sleek, it's red, and it's fast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it's comfortable on long rides?
1: Yes, it is. It's, it's really terrific. And we, my husband and I often do ride what's called two up where a, a little bit of a bigger bike, a road touring bike where I can get on the back of his. So we still do that on occasion as well.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, it seems like that block your view a little bit.
1: Uh, well, you know what? It allows you to take pictures, which I can't <laughs> do when I'm driving. Although, I keep threatening to get a GoPro put on my helmet, because then you can. But, uh, you know, you could do a little more bee hunting when you're on the back of somebody else's bike than you can <laughs> that's when you're true, driving. That's
0: true. So, in the book, let's dive into the book. So, you, you talk about um, leading with a destination philosophy and a journey perspective. And these are sort of two key concepts you explore throughout the book. So, so tell us what that means.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, the I, I, I've often had people tell me, and and your listeners might resonate with this this phrase: the journey matters as much as the destination. Yes,
0: the and journey. You, the journey is its own reward.
1: Right. I've always heard that, and you know what? I never bought it because I am a destination person by nature. You know, in business, family life, you name it. I'm one of those folks that I like to know where I'm going and how I'm going to get there, and the rest is just scenery. And that's what I used to think. That's how I lived my life. And I've certainly reached a lot of destinations that I've set my sights on. i've I've built a company and I've uh, then sold it. and I'm today I'm part of a global organization, and we've reaped a, a lot of great rewards from that. And entrepreneurship has definitely been the ride of my life, but it almost cost me far more because, When you have a strength like that, being very driven, when it goes to an extreme, it can become your weakness. And for me, I became so focused on building my business and wanting to be successful that everything around me began to suffer. My relationships with my family and my friends, my own health, my own spiritual, social life, all those things that really make life so rewarding they were really suffering. And I had to really stop and rethink my whole, as you say, the journey mindset, the whole mindset of how I wanted to approach striving to reach my goals, but not missing the whole ride of my life along the way, which is what I was doing. And so today, and motorcycling was sort of the catalyst for making me rethink the value of the journey itself. And so today I consider myself very much a destination leader, still very driven, but with a journey mindset, which means I've learned how to really savor the experience of the journey.
0: Got it. So, yeah, I mean, in the case, you know, journey really has sort of two, ten, two forms, right? There's the noun, traveling, you know, uh, you know, on a journey, traveling from one place to another. And I think you're using it really as the verb, is to travel somewhere. And I, I like mm-hmm. sort of the ambiguity of the somewhere, right? Because mm-hmm. you can have the destination, but, you know, the route's not necessarily laid out. And I think that's yeah, the thing that often, people people sort of oftentimes miss when they, you know, set goals for themselves. They think that it has to be this step and then the next step and the next step. And there's lots of ways to reach your goals.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and often our destination changes all together as we move along in our personal and professional lives. Our there uh, is different. You know, so when you say, I I ask you, where's your there? At a different stage of my life, I would have told you one thing. At this stage of my life, I might tell you something completely different. And the point is, as you just said, is fully experiencing the, the journey of your life and the unfolding of it all because you don't really know how it's all going to turn out. But that's okay because if you're really living in the moment and you're making the most of what is happening in your life today, the ride becomes the joy itself as opposed to, oh, if I can't reach the destination it just doesn't mean, I haven't been successful or it doesn't mean anything to me. I've learned to find joy in the journey.
0: Well, so if if. Let's say you have a destination it's a common destination. Let's say well, you and I each have the same destination. you know I <clears throat> excuse me, I have the destination philosophy. I'm just head down, drive, 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 and you know you're on your journey. when we both reach it is, is are we more one of us more effective than the other once we reach that destination
1: mm-hmm. Well, it's a good question. I, In my case, I felt like I was on the path to burnout. And I think that's the way most leaders are when they have pressed so hard into achieving their goals that they just kind of look up and say, I can't do it anymore. I mean, this I'm running as fast as I can. And is this all there is? Really? This is it? and it 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 becomes less meaningful. And that was part of when I realized I had been missing all of this experience in my life, of raising my children, um, having friends and close family. I mean, I had those things, Andy, but I wasn't really investing in them like I should. I certainly wasn't investing in myself. And you just kind of get to the point, I don't know if I could keep doing this. So it's some about having a more sustainable experience, I think mm-hmm. having a more joyful experience. And also this idea, I think a lot of leaders face this sense of, I want to be able to control everything, not only everything that's happening around me, but the outcome.
0: Why wow, right. And
1: and you begin to realize, you know what, I can't. (laughs) I can't control everything. So how do I still embrace what's happening to me and learn to go with the detours that are happening in my life and become opportunistic about the things that are maybe unplanned that are happening to me and still make the experience a great one?
0: Yeah, well, I think the risk, and you bring this out, and I think it's it's a good insight for people that you know want to read the book and learn about leadership. And because you know, as individual contributors, you're you're leading, um, is that you know if you are just head down looking at your destination, then you really risk becoming very dogmatic. Mm-hmm. And I think this is you know really a problem for people in business in general. Is you know you think this is the way it has to be, this is what I have to do and the consequences i mean to me it's sort of like having beliefs without education right i mean it's it's you're just not ever aware of the fact that there's another way to do it that could be better
1: Mm-hmm. There, You know, one of the early lessons I learned that I share in the, one of the first chapters of the book is called Scrap the Map. And it's an exact a story of something that happened to me that is exactly that point that you're bringing out. Yeah,
0: you're relocating from That's one true. part of the country to the other, right?
1: That's right. I had dreams of, uh, I'm in the field of public relations, I had dreams of building my own agency or climbing the corporate ladder, which I was doing in the early stages of my career. In a big and city. Boom! Yeah, my husband uh, had an opportunity to take a job, and we moved um, to a different part of the country to a very small market. And I just remember being so angry about that. Like, this is not the plan, you know? How I, I don't want that kind of a detour. I I want to stay where we are, or I want to do something better. And there's a real question that you have to ask yourself because we all face these detours, whether it's in our personal or professional lives. Is am I going to um, go with this detour and be bitter about it? Or am I going to go and let change make me better? I mean, all we all know this in life. We cannot always control what's happening to us, but we can control our response to it. And so when you learn to go with the detours in life, as I describe it, you become much more open to, okay, this is where I am now wonder what there is around me to do or to take advantage of or to leverage. And In my case, I was a first mover into a market and I was able to build my company um, very successfully. And I often look back and say, I don't think I could have been that successful had I not gone to the place that we went and had the opportunities to take advantage of in that market. So on the front end where I did the, see the advantage, on the back end I see all the wisdom of how great that turned out for me um, and I think it's a powerful lesson for us to remember in life.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, control, as we get into this idea of control, you know, it's a static concept. I mean, it's dangerous, right? I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is, I think, any leadership or anybody in a leadership position that tries to be too controlling, um, you start reinforcing the status quo, which is, is death to many organizations.
1: Mm -hmm. agree. And we can't control everything. And more and more in the world today, things are dramatically changing. There's a um, a type of leadership that I'm very taken with called adaptive leadership. And adaptive leadership, it's a theory of leadership that basically is saying that leaders today learn to solve problems in real time and they're often problems that they've never faced before that there's no apparent solution. So you as the leader are trying to lead your team in the moment through a significant change, which there's no clear answer. And how do you rally your team to do that? How do you have the vision um, to get there when you don't have the answer. (laughs) And so you have absolutely no control in this situation, except that you become sort of the cause that drives a a new solution forward and that moves a team forward into finding and discovering a new solution. I think it's it's a powerful concept that I strive for and I think is much more relevant to leaders in the world today.
0: Well, yeah, because what it's saying is that the expectation can't be that the leaders have all the answers. Because that's A, that's unrealistic, and B, if you have an organization where everybody's looking to the top person to say, what do we do now? Again, you're an organization that's in crisis at that point.
1: Yeah, and you do not want a company that's built around you. I, I remember we, about ten years into building my company, we hit this rapid stage of growth. It was it's really was odd. It was right it started in 2008, uh, believe it or not, right when the recession hit. But over the next five years, we grew more than 500 percent, and I went through another crisis of a different kind at that point, which crisis in leadership. When I realized, well, I as the founder uh, and the leader of the company, well, I could do everything in the company, but should I? be doing everything in the company. Gosh, no. I needed to build a leadership team around me. I needed to empower and equip them. And I need to give all that good stuff away to them. Give them responsibility and authority and credit. And boy, that was hard. That was probably one of the hardest lessons I've ever been through as a leader, was um, moving myself to another level as a leader. But that meant letting go. And that's very hard for most leaders to do, particularly entrepreneurs.
0: Well, you talk about that in the book about You know, the moment of fear, which I thought was an interesting thing. you talk about you know, first trip on the motorcycle getting on the back of the bike with your husband and you said that it you know, generated something inside you that was that you'd come to know well as a CEO, which was fear. So I mean I oftentimes I think people don't think about that and <laughs> they don't want necessarily think that their CEOs are, are frightened of something, but is that a sort of common feeling?
1: Oh, um, you know, I had a reporter once ask me right when uh, I released the book about two months ago, and she said, Elise, are you fearless? And I almost wanted to laugh out loud because I thought, (laughs) well, I think she sees our track record of success and she might assume that I have no fear. And I said, I wish I could tell you that that was true, but nothing could be further from the truth. Of course I have fears. We all do. And it's funny, though, how my fears have changed. Um, Years ago, when I was building the company, my biggest fear was fear of failure. And, and even worse, fear of public failure, which is not necessarily a bad motivator, right? It, I think a lot of us have that experience. Is I want to be successful. So it, it keeps you pushing maybe a little bit harder when you have that fear. But having been through different failures in my uh, career, and also realizing that if that was the worst thing I was afraid of, I really was um, not shooting high enough. <laughs> uh, I realized that now, you know what, my biggest fear is my um, a loss of self respect. I worry that I. Um, I would. I don't want to do anything that I would ever feel like I lost my own integrity. Mm-hmm. And I'm. I actually like that fear a lot better because it makes me stop and think about the decisions that I make all the time to make sure that, you know, no, it's not that that something would fail, but it was that I would do something that I would believe to be wrong and that I couldn't live with myself. So it's it's a good question for leaders to ask themselves: so, What am I afraid of? And how can I tackle that fear? How can I stare down that tiger and feel like that fear does not own me anymore?
0: Well, you you point out in the book, you said that you've learned not to let a lack of knowledge or fear of failure hold you back from taking the next step. I mean, is that saying, hey, fake it till you make it?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, I would say that every step of leadership feels a bit like that, in my view. It, especially if you're moving up. If you're ambitious and you want to grow and challenge yourself as a leader, then it's not a parallel move. And you may have a few of those, of course. but, Ultimately, you're you're striving to grow and you're striving to improve your skills, your knowledge, your expertise, You're you want to broaden your impact. And so it should be a bit of a stretch. And there are going to be plenty of things that you will not know as you step into that role and that responsibility as a leader. And you can't let it hold you back. Because I think that the fear of failure, if it holds you back and paralyzes you, that's when that fear has won. It's okay to have a healthy sense of of fear of failure, but you can't let it hold you back. You just grit your teeth and you say... I, you know, there's a reason I've been given this opportunity, right? So perhaps you have the the knowledge and the skills that got you the job, or got you th- this uh, got you this particular project or opportunity. But yet, I I'm smart enough to figure it out as I go, and I have smart enough people around me that will help me, whether that's mentors or allies or a network um, that you can turn to when you need some help that you don't can't can't pull on your own.
0: Got it. Well, another interesting part that you talk about in your book, when you're talking about the journey, from the journey perspective, is you say that throughout your career, you've always asked other people, what can I do for you? Hmm. And, you know, the implication is that in the book, and certainly from my own experience, this is, this is hard for people to do. Why, why is this so hard?
1: well having a spirit of reciprocity means you have to think outside yourself and i just think that goes against our human nature <laughs> you know the most important all, most important person in all of our lives is ourselves and just the way we're made and uh, we have to work against that natural instinct to think about how do i further myself and i remember when i learned that lesson powerfully it was stepping into a new leadership position uh, where i felt a bit over my head but after just a, a bit of time on the job i realized that I actually had a lot I could bring to the job, but it was also more important for me to begin building a strong network inside this new corporation. And so what I did was I went on a listening tour where I went and sat and talked with different leaders throughout the company, and I asked them to tell me what they knew about the organization, what what they thought our area could bring to what they were doing. Uh, That was our public relations team. Mm -hmm. And then I asked the last question, which made all the difference, which was, what can I do for you? And it was always such a, uh, I think people were always so surprised that I was asking them that question. I was willing to do something for them. But from the very get-go, it established a spirit of reciprocity that uh, I think carried me far further than I ever could have gotten on my own. And there's a great book out there by Adam Grant called Give and Take. Mm -hmm. And it is a whole book about leaders, givers, are far more successful than those who are takers. And he even does research on it. I mentioned it in my book because I thought it was such a nod to um, just out-of-the-box thinking on leadership style, and I really loved it.
0: Yeah. I mean, another book in the same vein is The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. Same thing. You know, it's you receive by giving initially. Mm-hmm. And it, it builds relationships in a way that that's way more authentic than it would be if you were starting on some other basis. Absolutely. And so then, if, yeah, the thing that's really important about it is that you do this not with the intent that there is a quid pro quo, but just that you're sincerely interested in what you can do to help them.
1: That's right. And building trust based relationships like that will carry you through the worst of times. If you can look across the, the pod or the aisle or down the hall um, or even across the country to a colleague of yours and know that you've got each other's back and you will do whatever it takes to help them succeed and they were willing to do the same for you, you can't hold a company like that back. There's no. so much power in the team because it's exponential at that point. It's not 1 plus 1 plus, equals 2. It's 1 plus 1 is 3 or 5 or 10 or whatever you think you can do because you, you've you drawn on a much deeper power of that team than you ever would have gotten on your own. It's something great leaders instill in their teams is a spirit of reciprocity.
0: So how did they do that? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Well, first you gotta role model it. You you have to be the leader who can demonstrate that I am here for you. And that uh, and you know, I do think this too, Andy, something I have thought about and I mentioned it toward the end of the book, that the higher calling of leadership is when you realize it's not about you, it's about everybody else. And and I think leadership takes on a very different um a different level of significance in your life when you realize what a privilege it is to be a leader because of your ability to impact and change the lives of those you lead. And so you approach leadership in a very different way. And I think that style of very selfless leader, the coaching leader, the giving leader, There's just nothing that people won't do for that kind of leader. They will follow you to the ends of the earth. I've seen that with our team. Uh, At times, I'm sure I did not deserve deserve their loyalty or their commitment, Um, but I've seen the power of that. and I think it's far more authentic and compelling for people to want to work for leaders who are like that than those who are takers.
0: So, how does that fit then into the, the paradigm you talk about the called leader versus the accidental leader? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, oh, a frog in my throat today. The called leader versus accidental leader.
1: Well, the called leader, I, I guess I, in the book, I described myself as I thought I was a called leader, which for me was, it was in my DNA to become a leader. And all throughout my young life, I sought out leadership opportunities. And so it was no surprise, I think, to anybody who knew me um, in my youth that I would strive to be a leader. Accidental leaders are those who find themselves in leadership and they didn't really have any intention of it, <laughs> whether it's um, maybe it's a family business they had to take over or um, they're in a company where somebody unexpectedly stepped out of leadership and people turn to them and asked them to become a leader and so it's almost what is what is your mindset as you approach leadership and I'm and in the book I I I tell people, I don't care whether you're a called leader or an an accidental leader, the opportunity for you to lead in a powerful way is there if you want it. And it's sort of up to you at that point if you have the heart of an explorer, you know, kind of on the destination journey theme, if you're willing to be an explorer and step out into the journey of leadership, even though you don't know how it's going to turn out, there's a lot of things you don't know, you feel ill-prepared. We all do. Are you willing to be the explorer and go anyway? And uh, and that is actually, I think, uh, part of the spirit of reciprocity is because you realize at that point that you're giving your life into something that um, is probably going to be more about um, helping those around you than it is about helping yourself.
0: Well, something interesting, you know, I've been reading Separately, it is, you it sort of relates to part of what you're talking about. You said, you know, the unpredictability is part of the fun if you're journey minded. you talk about your trip to, or your relocation, excuse me, from uh, East Coast to, to Arkansas. And are you finding in your own work now that people are less willing to sort of subject themselves to this unpredictability? Because there's a lot of data I've been reading recently in reports about how, um, you know, people are just are sort of staying still. You know, they're not moving. We're not as mobile as a workforce as we were before. We're not taking some of the risks that um, gosh, I read something recently that and since 1990 the percentage of Americans moving from one state to another in a given year has fallen by half. Wow. And the percentage of people leaving jobs within a certain period of time has fallen dramatically. Um, what do you think of the implications of that? I mean, is is less people willing to are in your mind? Do you see less people willing to step up and take these risks, especially if it involves some sort of uh big change like you undertook?
1: Perhaps, you know, and maybe it sort of depends again on on the individual and their propensity to to accept change or to be the explorer to go on the journey. How much stability and certainty do they think they need? The, I've often heard it said about the millennial generation that they are much more willing to move about. You know, they they will change jobs more frequently. They're willing to step out um, and try different things. Whereas I think my generation was. A little more rigid. So it probably depends more on the individual. Um, and also then as leader, it's up to us to create a compelling destination for people to want to to come to. For example, I write in the book quite a bit about, I think, the power of a compelling culture is an example. If you're an entrepreneur or a leader, you have the ability to create an environment that is empowering to people. It's um, uh, an environment that encourages innovative thinking, um, Um, What I call creating a culture of try, which allows people to experiment and try new things and not be afraid to fail. You know, these are things that are definitely within our um, ability to change and impact an organization as a leader. And I think that those maybe that's part of the challenge, Andy, is that we need to do a better job of creating something compelling that draws people to us. So, it doesn't matter if they're mo- picking up and moving around the world or um, they're having to take on a different role or switch. I've seen people switch careers and in industries, which I mm-hmm. think is very um, taking a lot of risk. But if, again, the question is do they see something compelling on the other side that means that they're willing to walk across the fiery coals of fear in order to get there? So, maybe that's really more on us as leaders to create that compelling destination for people to want to come.
0: Okay. Well, that's a good point, I mean I think yeah, well one of the things that that I wanted to foster sort of follow up on that on is is you we know, talk about leadership sort of this destination as and I see this unfortunately a fair amount in some companies I work with is that that some people think that leadership is sort of its own reward like it's it is sort of the pinnacle, and as you point out it's it's really just the beginning,
1: yes indeed, and uh again, thinking about the higher calling of leadership, which was something that, that was sort of my turning point in life, the time that I got on the back of the motorcycle when I was asking the burning question, is this all there is? It was trying to determine what good could I do as a leader? You know, I was beginning to think about things like, you know, can you actually create significance in the lives of others? I mean, if you're in business, you know for me if you build a company like that's not I'm not saving anybody's life. I don't I wasn't feeling like I was doing something significant with my time. And I do think people today are very oriented toward cause and wanting to do something mm-hmm. good for others, for their community, not just for themselves. And they ask that question, what good is what am I doing? What what good is What good am I doing Mm -hmm. in my work? What is the purpose of my work? And that was when I began to realize that indeed, in fact, leadership is one of the highest callings you can have because of your ability to impact other people's lives. We have so much potential to make decisions, open doors, um, change the entire trajectory of a person's career or their life. I mean, how many times can we sit back and think about people who did that for us? We have that p- ability to do that still today as leaders, and I think it begins to it began to give me a greater sense of purpose and satisfaction about what I felt like I'd been called to do, and that leadership was a was a great calling if I chose to think of it in that way.
0: And I think exploring that further, because we talk about this concept of significance comes up increasingly as you, especially as I talk in. Talk to guests like yourself that have written about leadership, that are in leadership positions, and reading books about it. You know, this living a life of significance, you know, comes up more and more frequently. I mean, are you defining it, you know, too narrowly or too broadly? I mean, when someone's sort of an individual contributor, because I look at leadership and sales, for instance, we have a big sales audience that listens to this, is I think that sales leadership starts with the individual, you know, in terms of how they work with their customers, how they work with their peers. And so on within the company is so what what role is significance in that?
1: Well, significance, okay, that was that's an excellent question. I have thought about that quite a bit, actually, is, To me, significance is less about this idea of sort of this grandiose idea of being a a philanthropist or, you know, changing the entire world, which is sort of what you think about when you're young, you know, Mm -hmm. is I'm going to have this big impact. And instead, today, I think much more about significance as doing the right things one thing at a time. It's doing what's directly in front of me today. Changing that one person's life for good. Helping that customer with that very unexpected need or request that they have. Furthering their business and their opportunities as a professional. These are all the seemingly small things but when you string your entire career together with all of the different small things that you have been able to do to help others around you in one in one way in one day This idea of significance, I think, becomes very um, palatable and very believable because you begin to see, wow, I've really been able to do a lot. And I didn't do it by seeking significance for myself. I did it by creating significance for others. One person, one opportunity, one day at a time. And that became much more believable to me to think that maybe my leadership could have the potential for significance. Because when I've thought about all the people that I've touched in my life, I realized, well, that was a lot. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: So, I think it becomes a more empowering idea as I can do something important today that can change the lives of others. And all I have to do is what's right in front of me.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, Elise, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show today. And uh, tell folks how they can find out more about you, connect with you, learn more about your book.
1: Thank you, Andy. Yes, please. I would love to connect with um, listeners and readers. The um, I have a website called EliseMitchell.com. So it's E-L-I-S-E-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L. My name, EliseMitchell.com, and they can find out anything they want. They can buy the book there. Leading Through the Turn. They um, I have a lot of people that ask me to come and speak at conferences and events. Uh, you can certainly do that there. I have an email um, and a blog that goes out weekly. You can sign up there. Any way that I can be of some service to someone else. I would love to do that, because my goal is simply to help others to lead at their best.
0: All right. Well, very good. Well, thanks again for joining us today. And friends, thank you for spending this time with us today. As always, make sure you come back and join us again tomorrow. Until then, I appreciate it. If you get a chance, go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a review for Accelerate. We really want to hear what you have to say, either good or bad. Whatever we can do to improve this experience for you. And thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.